This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. We're so glad that you're listening today. I'm Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. How are you doing today, Professor Gershon? I'm doing great, Liz, and I want to wish everyone uh, who is celebrating a new year right now, Lashana Tovai, Happy New Year uh, to those celebrating Rosh Hashanah. And I uh, wanted to start, if I could, by uh, introducing an event that we're going to be having at the law school that's free for people to attend next Monday, September 17th. Uh, we will be having two constitutional law experts uh, debating uh, w- what is originalism and is it a good idea? Uh, it's part of the Constitution Day commemoration at the university and sponsored by the Boyce Holloman Debate Series uh, at the University of Mississippi School of Law. It's free. It's at 1230 in the Weems Auditorium. And the two scholars involved are Professor Chris Green, who has been a guest on the show before from our university, our law school, and Professor Eric Siegel from Georgia State School of Law. So uh, that should be a great event. And again, it is open to the public. The Constitution, it's old, but very relevant. Absolutely. But but today, it, it's always uh, so much fun to have Professor Stacy Lantain on the show. Uh, Stacy is a gra- graduate of Harvard Law School. She practiced law uh, in big firms in Boston and in D.C., brings a lot of experience in intellectual property law, copy, copyrights, trademarks, uh, patents. And, and today she's talking about a subject I didn't even really know existed as a legal subject, uh, but it's fascinating. Fascinating, and it truly affects all of us about, you know, really, you know, who owns our genetic material. So it's great to have uh, Professor Lantain on today. Thank you for having me. Everything is a legal subject. You should know that by now. <laughs> <laughs> Professor Lantain, we are so happy to have you. And to remind our listeners, you were on In Legal Terms talking about copyright law on our September 8th, 2017 show. So uh, if everyone is... Uh, just loves all of your your knowledge that you give to the show they can go back to our website and listen to that september 8th but today we're going to talk about genetic testing i find this very interesting i'll go ahead and say i've had my dna done with ancestry.com mm-hmm. you are not alone um. <laughs> <laughs> well and i think that was that was part of the the point uh, ancestry.com allows you to connect uh, with other people who have signed on to that website who also have that genetic test to find relatives around the country. Looking online, National Geographic has a test to see where in the world your DNA migrated from. Embody DNA has a test that claims to help you lose weight. And 23andMe gives you a report that shows your genetic risk based on a limited set of variants for breast, ovarian, and other types of cancers. So 
I think they claim that the secret to the world is in your DNA. Yeah, and um, I think they're not wrong about that. <laughs> your your DNA contains a ton of information, not just about your past and your heritage and, and who you're related to, but also about your future, as you're mentioning the, the breast and ovarian cancer gene um, points out. We, we, we now have tests that... Um, certain forms of breast and ovarian cancer are genetic, and and we can flag you as a person who's at risk for those. And you you may have remembered that a few years ago, Angelina Jolie was tested, um, which she needed to be tested because her mother had had died of that type of cancer, and she was tested, and she found out she had the gene, and she had a decision to have a double mastectomy and to remove um, those portions of her body that that were exposing her to risk. And so, DNA really tells you. Um, uh, an awful lot about uh, who you are and and how you uh, interact with the world, and for that reason, um, it's an important thing to really think about who owns it, where that information is going, how that information is being used, because it is it is a lot of information. Ancestry um, says that it has a database of over ten million people's DNA, and that database allows them to connect you with over one hundred million families, and that's a huge huge number of people with a lot of information that's in there. Um, and as you said, they'll provide you with information about your genetic background to, to a lot of detail, what region your ancestors were from, what percentage of your background is from which region of the world. Um, but they'll also give you, you know, they'll, they'll talk to you about ovarian and breast cancer. They will also talk to you about whether or not you like the taste of cilantro. They can figure that out from your DNA. So it's, you know, really important things like that and then things that I really don't need the DNA test to tell me that I'm one of the people who doesn't like cilantro but they can tell you that 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 it's through genetic testing and they can also connect you with long-lost relatives including relatives you might be surprised to find out that you have um, and in fact the the websites are littered with disclaimers saying you might learn that you are not biologically related to people you thought you were biologically related to and um, we're not responsible for the pain and fallout from that situation. Yes, I think that is quite a caution and a, a revelation to some individuals to find out secrets from their family that they weren't aware of. So that might be a, a reason to not have DNA tests. But what are some you've mentioned some, but what are some reasons that you would benefit from DNA testing? Um, I think, you know, it, it, if you're a person who's really curious about your background, it, it obviously gives you a lot about your background. Um, I, my personal family history, my family is entirely descended from people who came over to this country in the early 20th century, and everything is lost for us before that. We can't trace back before when they showed up in this country. And I would be really curious to learn more about these people who I didn't know, um, but, you know, I resemble in weird ways when you when you look back at photographs from there. And so you can get that information, but you can also get, as I said, information about um, your predisposition to certain kinds of cancer. Also, whether you are a carrier for genes for certain diseases that you could pass on to your children. So maybe you are not at risk for that. But if you are a carrier for those things, they can also... Um, 
test you for a tendency to certain kinds of anemia, certain kinds of blood clots, um, certain kinds of dementia. So you can get all of that information. Um, and also it's just fun, you know, and especially if you, if you are looking for information about yourself, I think, I think it can be great. Um, but you know, I think it's always good to, to take it with caution too. Um, I think about people who want to learn more about their families and then are like, maybe I didn't want to know that much about my family. So, um, so I think it's a good thing to go into, um, knowing the full impact of, of what it could reveal to you. The PBS television series Finding Your Roots with Dr. Henry Louis Gates is always so interesting, and I think a lot of African-American actors or famous people that go on the show they are always very pleased to find out their ancestry records because it wasn't written down. Yeah, yeah. And there is there is so much um, that has been really sort of trampled over in, in the way that history just kind of, you know, closes the door and moves on. And I think it's it's really nice and does give you a fuller sense of who you are as a person to to sort of become closer to the struggles of, of the generations before and what they had to go through. And I think that these tests can really crystallize that, you know. Listeners, we're talking about the legal ramifications of genetic testing. So if you would have a question for Professor Gershon or Professor Lantang, give us a call. Our number is area code 877-MPB-RING. That's 877-672-7464. You can also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. And Professor Gershon, with all of these testing sites, it is a the transaction is a contract. You're providing them spit or saliva or saliva, yeah. <laughs> or uh, cheek cells and they are providing you information, but they all have uh, terms and conditions. Have you do you know much about the different contract issues with some of the DNA companies? You know, the truth is, I think like most people, Liz, I haven't had myself tested, honestly. Um, but most people don't read those things. I, mean, I You know, when I got my card at my grocery store, you know, that, that uh, I, I use to check out and I get discounts and they know which coupons to send me because they know what I'm buying. I, I signed an agreement. I signed a waiver. And, and unlike a good lawyer, I should have read all those things. But I don't think people do. And it's and we've had uh, Professor Lantano on before talking about you know rights on websites. When you download an app, you agree to terms. And I, and I think we should be more careful. And I think part of part of the reason uh, that this is such an interesting topic is because. You know, and I didn't know this until I talked to, to Stacy about it. I mean, you know, you're giving away a certain monet. I mean, things that are, could be monetized by other people uh, that you are paying to do. You're paying to have these tests, and then they can turn around and and, and monetize them and sell them back to you in some ways. Uh, so we need to know more about these things. We ought to be curious about about what contracts we're entering into. Right. And I think it is important to note, you're not just giving them your saliva. You're giving them your saliva and $1 to $200, right? So it's not a service that they are providing you for free. You are paying for what you're getting back. And so in that sense, it's a little bit different than a lot of the contracts that we enter into every day online because a lot of those, you know, you sign up for Facebook, you sign up for Twitter, you download an app. Most apps, well, I don't know if most apps are free, but many apps are free. Um, so you're not paying anything, right? And in that way, I think we often understand 
at least subconsciously, that there's a trade-off being made that in some way we must be the product, right? We're giving up some kind of privacy, some kind of data um, in exchange for this free service that's being given to us. And I think when you are also paying money for something, it's easy for the consumer to fall into the trap of, well, then they also aren't selling me because I'm paying for some kind of, of protection around that. And that is not necessarily true. And you're, it doesn't actually make you a bad lawyer that you don't read all of your terms and conditions because studies have shown that for you to read the terms and conditions of every contract you enter into every day would take more than 25, 24 hours. So you'd constantly be behind. So there's no, you know, it's not, it's not a bad thing that necessarily that people are agreeing to these things without reading them as a matter of practical efficiency. You have to, right? You can't spend your whole life reading terms and conditions. Um, but I think that there, there are certain assumptions that we make, especially when we're paying for a good or service that, um, might not be um, upheld in this situation. And, and I say that because it is true that I have read the terms and conditions for Ancestry and 23andMe, and they do sell your, your DNA data further on um, because they're using it for scientific research. And you might be sitting there saying like, cool, I want my DNA used for scientific research. The future of medicine is genetic, and we should we should get in on that, and we should do this. But it is true that they are selling it to for-profit corporations who are then going to sell it back to you. So you've already paid to give them the DNA, and then you're going to pay again once they come up with whatever medication it is. Um, and that's something to to really think about, you know, just be aware that that's the situation that we've set up. I think it's different than, I think most people, if you ask them, hey, would you donate your DNA for the good of science? I think most people would say, sure. But I think most people would say, hey, would you pay, would you pay me money and I'll take your DNA and then you'll pay me more money later down the line? I think most people would say, well, wait a second, what am I getting out of the deal? And um, one of my favorite terms and conditions is 23andMe says something like, there's no cost to you to participating in our scientific research. Research. There's also no benefit to you to participating in scientific research. Um, and I thought that was really interesting. And the benefit, of course, is to all mankind. But it's just something to be aware of with knowing where your, where your DNA is. You know, we talk a lot about where your private information is and, and how much we don't know about where that's being spread all over the web. And this is arguably just as important because um, it says a lot of information about who you are, who you're going to be in the future, um, that, that we should just be aware of what's happening with it. All right, and we need to take our first break. We're going to continue with our discussion about genetic testing. Hey, did you hear whose portrait it will hang near the entrance of the National Portrait Gallery for the next few months? The person is quite associated with DNA research. And if you have any questions about the laws concerning genetic testing, please give us a call. Our phone number is area code 877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. We realize that not everyone has a chance to listen to our show live. If you've missed any of our program, you can go back and listen to the whole show at mpbonline.org slash in legal terms. It's also available on the MPB Media app, as is all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. Our guest today is Professor Stacy Lantang, and we're talking about genetic testing. And I, I posed a question about whose portrait is in the portrait gallery. It's a lin- oil-on-linen work, Henrietta Lacks Helac, the mother of modern medicine. It'll hang at one side of the main entrance at the National Portrait Gallery through November. Professor Lantang, uh, tell, remind our listeners about Henrietta Lacks and tell us what you know about the latest in her legal situation. Yes, yeah, so um, Henrietta Lacks is a, an African-American, or was an African-American woman who um, died in 1951, and she died of um, a type of cervical cancer. She was diagnosed with cancer at a very young age, was only 31 when she died, and tissue samples were taken from her tumors, right? She gets diagnosed from can- with cancer. They take tissue samples from her tumors. They didn't ask her permission to take these tissue samples, and that wasn't unusual in the early 1950s. That was not a thing that they did a whole lot of, asking for a lot of consent. They signed a lot fewer papers um, in the early 1950s than we did now. But they took these without her consent and then they used these samples to um, culture into the HeLa cell line, um, which are they've been used by researchers to develop a lot of medical treatments. And and the Lax family did not actually learn about this, even though it was it was well known to researchers. It was used. Um, they didn't learn about this until decades later that their genetic information was being used to develop medicine. It was actually published at one point, so. Their genetic information was just out there for everyone to see, um, which, you know, raises raises privacy concerns. You know, maybe you don't want people knowing that you're prone to this particular type of disease or, or even that you're prone to baldness, which is something that we can figure out from genetic testing. Um, and given how much effort some people go through to hide that, I'm not sure they want that written uh, in the newspaper or in, or in scientific journals. Um, so there has been a lot of debate um, in including in, in pop culture, I think that HBO had a miniseries, I think, about Henrietta Lacks, um, about genetic information and issues of consent and privacy. And yes, it's great that all of these things were, were being done with it, but the fact that the family... Um, was not given, was not made aware at all that any of this stuff was happening. Um, and that really, you know, they, they took a tragedy in this young family's life. I mean, her her youngest child, I don't even think was a year old when she died. They were a very young family, and they t- and they were a very poor family. Uh, she was buried in initially an unmarked grave because they they were too poor. Um, and they took this and they and they 
you know, monetized it and um, did all of it without consent, without compensation, without even giving like a heads up, like, hey, we're going to do this whether you like it or not. Um, and so that that has spurred a lot of debate about you know, whether this should be done. Is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? How would you feel if it happened to you? Um, I know that a few years ago, the Lax family reached an agreement with the National Institute of Health um, that gives it some control over over the DNA sequence. And also there is a committee which regulates access to the DNA sequence and two members of the family sit on the committee. So in that way, at least they, they do, um, I think, feel that they have some say going forward in the future about what happens with this with this DNA sequence. Well, then that brings us straight to the heat and the point of this show, who owns the DNA and the information that's locked in there. What what has been some of the legal decisions? Has there been any legal decisions? Well, what we do know about DNA is um, it can't be patented in its... So your DNA sequence can't be patented. And the reason that we know this is because um, when the the BRCA1 and BRCA2 sequence for breast cancer um, and ovarian cancer, when they were finally sort of isolated and identified, right, there was a lot of research and time and effort that went into doing that. And when that happened, the company that first isolated the DNA sequence, then went and patented the sequence. And what I say when you get a patent, the United States government agrees to grant you a monopoly, that you are the only person who can um, use monetize, do whatever with that particular invention of yours. So they went and they got a patent on that sequence of DNA. And that patent will last for 20 years and um, 17 years, I think, sorry. And um, when they did that, that meant that all of the tests for breast cancer and ovarian cancer using the BRCA1 and BRCA2 genes had to go through that one company, which, as you can imagine, meant that the price went way up, right? If you wanted to find out that you whether or not you carried this gene, um, it was expensive for, for you to do that. And um, there was a debate. Like, should that really be a thing that can happen? Should someone be able to patent a DNA sequence and therefore control your own access to information about yourself, right? That you you won't be able to see if you have that um, DNA sequence because you're not allowed to know that about yourself without paying some sort of money to the person we've given the monopoly over that information about you. Um, so that case went to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court found that no one can own a patent in um, your naturally occurring DNA sequence. And this is, it actually depends on well-established law, which is that we don't allow people to own things that occur naturally in nature. This is, you know, people don't own... um, now I can't think of anything that occurs naturally in nature, but you know they don't own certain plants, right? If the plant occurs in nature, then you don't own that particular plant. Um, but what the court did say was that you might be able to own synthetic forms of DNA because those are man-made. Um, this introduced a lot of confusion because what's really, you know, it's it's kind of an artificial difference between owning a DNA sequence of naturally occurring DNA and then you create the DNA in the in the lab. Um, but what we do know, what we're fairly confident of, is that no one can patent your DNA sequence. And this is why you can take a 23andMe test now for a couple of hundred dollars and you can find out if you have the BRCA1 or BRCA2 gene. Um, you can go to your doctor and ask for it. You always could, but it was, it was prohibitively, well, not a prohibitively, well, yeah, prohibitively expensive for for many people um, to get access to that. So we know that it can't be patented. 
as far as who owns it, um, we don't really have case law about who owns your DNA. Is it a property? Um, It's odd to think of it that way, and and it hasn't really fit into um, law yet. This is all very new. When I was doing research for talking with um, you guys about this, the 23andMe says that it has the first one of these tests to have been cleared by the FDA for, for public consumption, and that was in 2015. That was three years ago. So usually it takes the law a long time to lumber its way through to how we feel about a particular thing. Um, Ancestry's terms of service say flat out, you own your DNA, but that's actually a change. I reviewed Ancestry's terms of use um, last summer, and they did not say that. In fact, they claimed they maybe thought that you owned it, but they claimed to take a worldwide irrevocable license to do whatever they wanted with it. Um, and that caused a little bit of a, of a public outcry. And Ancestry did change its terms of use as a result to clarify that they believe that you own your DNA. But as far as having a court having decided that yet, you don't really have that yet. You know, it's interesting. We, uh, Stacey and I were talking about a little bit about you know, other uh, body fluids in a way. I mean, blood, uh, if you donate blood, uh, people have asked, well, can I take a charitable deduction for donating blood? And the, and the IRS has said, no, that's not property. That's a service. So blood's not considered property. But things like semen, uh, courts have held, uh, you know, is property or zygote uh, is property. So um, I think we're still struggling. I think they're kind of all over the place. There have also been rulings that um, like discarded tissue is not your property, like tissue that you don't need anymore for your body. Um, And so I'm not sure where they're drawing the line. It seems it seems a little scattered. I don't think we've decided yet. All right. Well, we need to take our next break. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about how the police, how law enforcement maybe has been using DNA information. I found it very fascinating about how the DNA testing helped law enforcement catch who they think was the Golden State Killer. Our number is area code 877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gershon is our expert, along with his co-worker, Professor Stacy Lynn Tang, and we're talking about the brand new force of law is genetic testing. So if you have a question about the legal issues about it, please give us a call. Our area code is 877 
MPB ring. That's 1-877-672-7464. So, Professor Lantang, I mentioned the Golden State Killer, which was a individual who they named that after being a serial killer in the 20th century. Uh, do, are you familiar with how this individual was apprehended? I am, yes. Um, uh, I actually have a friend who is huge into true crime stuff, and this was a major moment in her life. Um, so he, they had his, his DNA from um, the Golden State Killer's DNA from a crime scene, right? As, as you do, you, you collect the, the DNA that you find at crime scenes, but they had not been able to use that to any good, right? They had not been able, it had not given them any leads for, for years. They collected it from the crime scene in 1978. And now, you know, we're 30 years later. But in the meantime, what has happened is we have developed um, these enormous databases of DNA information, right? You go on Ancestry.com tells you, hey, upload your DNA and I can link you to over 100 million families. So if you're law enforcement and you've got DNA that was found at a crime scene, you can go and submit it to websites like that and see if you get a hit, right? Like see if maybe you really look out and the person who's the killer has uploaded their DNA to those websites. But it can connect you to potential family members of of those killers. Um, so, you know, I personally have not done Ancestry, but my understanding is that when you do it, Ancestry then says to you, hey, we found this person we think is a brother or a sister, right? Like that they can sort of predict what the family relationship is. Um, so... The lead investigator in the Golden State Killer case um, used a website that has voluntarily shared publicly available genetic information, and they got a hit on it that kind of led to the, the breaking of the case. And this was a very high-profile use of this, but it is definitely not an isolated incident. Police, um, law enforcement has been using DNA databases and what, what we call familial DNA, so the DNA of family members to break cases for a while now, and they've broken a lot of um, fairly high-profile cold cases that way. The caution of this is it seems great, right? Like, you, you solve this case that otherwise might not have ever been solved. The caution is that often it doesn't connect you to the killer. It connects you to family members. And so you, law enforcement, has to be careful um, who it is that they accuse, that they do, they do have to do follow-up um, investigation of work to make sure that they have the right person. Um, this was used to crack a case in England, I think, and the way that they used it was they got a hit on a 14-year-old boy in the DNA database, but the murder had happened like 20 years ago. So clearly he's not the murderer. He wasn't born yet, but they have to figure out how the murderer is related to that person. And, you know, that that can be scary if if you get a hit and, you know, they're like, this person could be your brother and you've got three brothers. Um, there are cases of people who the police have just showed up on at their door um, asking for, you know, their DNA. And um, they complied. And, and I was reading an article and one of them said, you know, he complied with it. And then he said, hey, so do you think like one of my family members is like a serial killer or something? And they were like, we think it's you. And he was oh, like, no. what? 
it. And um, he spent a couple of months being really worried about this whole situation. And then he got a letter in the mail and they were like, turns out it's not you. Sorry that we bothered you. So, you know, there there are instances where this could be a really scary couple of months in your life um, if, if they get it wrong. And I think we think of DNA evidence as being a panacea, but um, it depends like anything else on, on how well you um, compare the DNA. So if you're only comparing DNA over a few markers, there's actually a high possibility that um, other people's DNAs, DNA will all overlap on seven or eight markers in a lot of members of, of the population, much fewer members than you think. Um, my favorite statistic is that you only have to have 23 people in a room to have a greater than 50% chance that two of them share a birthday. That's it. And so there's like this weird sort of, you don't need that many people if you're only looking at a few um, areas of overlap on DNA to find false positives. And so the more, you know, the more, the more that you look at particular more markers, the, the more it becomes um, more probable that you found the right person. But you, you have to be careful not to jump to conclusions. And that's an important thing to remember in a society where news spreads really quickly and it is really hard to get you know, news that turns out to be false back in back in the barn once it's run out of there. And so um, DNA, DNA is, is awesome and, and can lead to a lot of great things, but it's also something that we should we should be careful about, as with most things. I mean, it's like the, our financial information. It's the same, same idea. I mean, it really, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. I mean, this is maybe more important because it gives us a lot of information about us. So, yeah. you know, I, I don't want to give my credit card information over the phone. Uh, and I, I tell companies that. I think maybe we need to be careful about where we send our DNA, especially. Right. And there's a lot of talk about the Fourth Amendment implications for, you know, if, if the police do show up at your door and they ask you for a swab of saliva, you should probably ask for a warrant before you just hand it over. Even if you think, hey, I'm not a serial killer. I'll help them out. Um, I don't know. You maybe want to be a little careful <laughs> with, with just handing over that information. So does it take a warrant? Does it take a subpoena? What, what can a law enforcement agency do? What information do they need to go on to get the, uh, the answers to their questions from DNA databases or from an individual? So the DNA databases say that they're going to keep your information private unless they are required by law to reveal it. And they, they do give as examples warrants, subpoenas, court orders, stuff like that. So if the law enforcement needs to go get information from the from the d- DNA database, um, they do need to follow proper legal procedures according to the, the database's terms of service. Um, I think that part of the challenge is if they have the DNA and they're just kind of uploading, I don't know that necessarily the police need to go through the DNA databases to get that information. And the DNA databases do say that you agree that you're uploading your information or information you have permission to upload. But um, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting little wrinkle there that although the databases are protecting your privacy, it's, it's unclear to me how much the police really need to get information from the databases. This, this information seems to be stuck they already have. As far as getting it from you, I'm actually not a criminal law expert in that. I feel like if someone, if the police asked me, I feel like I would say I want to see a warrant, but I don't know if that's just the lawyer in me saying I'm not handing anything over until I see a warrant. Well, I mean, I think 
for something like that. It's not like, you know, you, uh, I agree with you. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think that's uh, a probable that they should have probable cause to get a warrant. And, and you know, it's, cert- it's like a search. Right. Uh, uh, and, you know, yeah. so I, I think it's the same thing. Um, this is a really invasive search because they're going to find out a lot more about you than just were you at a crime scene. They're mm-hmm. going to find out, you know, they could potentially find out everything about your potential medical future. I mean, there's a lot there, as you mentioned. And um, California, at least, and possibly other states, um, have been talking about sort of everyone who gets kind of arrested gets put into a DNA database. Um, And so that's, and then they have that to draw against. What's interesting about all of that is, you know, there's sort of this impulse in society to think like that's great, and then we'll know who all of the criminals are. The Golden State Killer would not have been in this database because he had not been arrested for anything. I mean, he was there was a shoplifting charge. I don't think he was. I don't remember what the details of it are. But at any rate, it wasn't like he was a person who was in and out of trouble with the law. Who you would be like, well, we could have caught him a lot earlier if we just made all criminals give us their DNA. Um, it's not, cl- you know, it's not clear that that's the case. And people have raised concerns that because the population of people who get arrested is disproportionately people of color that will end up with DNA databases where we know all of the information about people who are already less powerful and more vulnerable in society. Um, and so that's that's a concern to have about that. You know, one one good thing, though, that has happened that we uh, benefited from even, even at our law school is the Innocence Project, mm. uh, when DNA was you know, kind of a new te- technology or new new ability to test. And, and so people have been exonerated yeah. uh, for of crimes because of DNA testing. So it's uh, one of those things. Nothing is nothing is evil or all good, right? It's just you need to be you need to be thoughtful about how you're using it and recognize its limitations and and the dangers it poses as well as the benefits it poses. Because you're right, it's changed so many people's lives in exonerating people who were wrongfully convicted. One thing that I found very interesting when researching this topic was that. If you've been born since the 1960s, there may have been DNA testing on you when you were a newborn. Newborn screening has expanded since the introduction of the PKU testing in the 60s. And, but in the United States, since 2011, the U.S. screens for 54 conditions. Is this a database that's just out there? Do you think this is information that gets destroyed uh, is this something that police could warrant? So that I didn't know about. Um, and I'm wondering, does it go in your medical record? Like, where where is the information being kept? See that? I Could a I, hospital sell this information right. for every individual born in the United States since we, 2011? We theoretically have laws in place, I think, that, that would protect that stuff. But it's something to think about, right, if they've got all that information. And again, your DNA... Um, I, you know, really is going to be the future of medical treatment. Um, I think that most medical research points to, you know, cancers are, every person is unique. Every disease affects every person in a unique way, a lot of which the key to is in our DNA. And so if they can unlock that, you can be much more successful in treating people's diseases. So all of this DNA information is incredibly valuable. Um, I mean, 23andMe, there was a big outcry over the summer because they're sitting on a gold mine of incredible 
incredibly valuable information. And they got like a $300 million investment from GlaxoSmithKline um, over that because of how valuable this information is. Um, so I should say we do have a law in this country called the Genetic Information Non-Discrimination Act, GINA for short. Um, and that makes it illegal for, generally makes it illegal for health insurance companies and most employers to seek your genetic information without your consent. And so you could see how this, this is something that you would worry about for health insurance, right? That they go get your genetic information and they say, well, wait a second, looks like you're at risk for breast cancer, so not going to cover you. Um, so that is something that we do have a law in place to protect us from that. It does not protect you from discrimination with regard to life insurance or disability insurance, which is something to really think about because if you're a person, you know, life insurance, we generally think if you're dying sooner, you get paid out more, right? Because of, of how much you leave behind. Um, and so it's something to think about if life insurance companies can sort of ask for your genetic information and say, well, we're not insuring you. You're probably going to die young. Like how terrible for you. You're going to die young and you can't get life insurance. Um, yeah. And employers too. I would worry mm-hmm. that employers could say, well, you know, we, we are concerned about healthcare costs. And if we're going to hire somebody who yep. has a, some kind of potential disease that we may have to cover or, you know, our pool of insurance has to cover, we just won't take that chance. Yeah. I mean, I, yeah. So, yeah. Fascinating. Well, yeah. we have a call. Uh, Sue from Beaumont. Thanks for calling in to In Legal Terms. Go ahead. I heard somebody make a comment uh, about jumping to conclusions, and it made me think of something I saw on National Geographic. Can I tell you about it right quick? Right quick. Okay. There was a uh, some mummies found in a museum in China, and they were they look like Caucasian mummies. And the National Geographic, this is decades ago, they thought that maybe this was that pushed the contact between you know, Chinese and Europeans back several hundred years. But then when they finally obtained DNA sample of this six-foot-tall, red-haired, red-bearded corpse of money, they found out that uh, this, this person was a combination of every race that had crossed the Silk Road. And, and so they, they, it was not, even not Caucasian totally at all, you know. And also, uh, the researchers have thought that Cro-Magnons vanquished the uh, Neanderthals and they all died out, but... They've got Neanderthal DNA, and they found out that all human beings now have a little bit of Neanderthal in them. So I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, and in fact, I think it's 23andMe will give you um, information about your Neanderthal background. So, oh, yeah. Really? I think so. I saw that on one of the websites I was looking at. I think it was 23andMe. Oh, my. <laughs> disappeared. So if you wanted to know about the sagas of the caveman days, it's all there for you. All right. Well, we need to take our next Thank break. You. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion about genetic testing. Our phone number is area code 877-MPB-RING. That's 1-877-672-7464. You can also send us an email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Thanks for listening to In Legal Terms on Think Radio.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, please go back and listen to our whole show at mpbonline.org slash inlegalterms. You can listen on our app uh, as you can with all of our shows. I'm Liz Gill here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. And our guest is Professor Stacy Lynn Tang. Now, before we get back to our discussion about genetic testing, the Constitution Day. Tell us more about that and Professor Gershon and who might be interested in uh, going up to Oxford to hear about that. Everyone. Yeah, I, I totally agree. <laughs> Thank you, Professor Lantana. I totally agree because this is, you know, not only do we have uh, two great legal scholars, and including our own uh, wonderful Chris Green, but, you know, Eric Siegel from Georgia State University. But, you know, we, we, we've got a confirmation hearing going on or has been going on with a, a potential new justice of the Supreme Court who is an originalist. And so there's a question, you know, I mean, what is originalism? Justice Scalia was an originalist. Uh, and these two Scholars are going to debate what does it mean to be an originalist, and is that a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What, you know, what is this all about? And I, I think anyone uh, might be interested in this. I don't think it's overstating to say that I think this is the crux of almost every debate we have as as a country these days is over whether or not the Constitution should be interpreted in an originalist sense. I think this is the crux of the debate. So, um, yeah, am I overselling things? Not at all. Not at all. <laughs> And this is on September 17th. That's correct. And it's at 1230 in the Weems Auditorium here at the law school. Uh, people will need to get parking passes if they come, but you can get those uh, online. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's well it, open to the public and free. Great, great. Well, we're and talk- we don't even take your private information. <laughs> it's a free event, and we're not going to sell your data. <laughs> I hope I'm saying a true statement there. Too. That's absolutely true. <laughs> so... It- This is your information. Now, I know if someone, Professor Gershon, if someone steals my credit card information, uh, I know, I think now we now know what can happen with that. But with our genetic information, is there, I guess the stealing would be them using that information to make money on their own research? I mean, so first of all, it it could be hacked, right? Um, so they've got all these databases, and they're definitely protecting them. And I don't mean to imply that they're that they're not protecting them, but much as you know, we're all protecting all of our valuables. There's still a possibility that those things could be stolen by people who are not the the databases. And so there there is that that you always have to watch out for. Um, as far as see, it's it's hard to call it stealing because everything they're doing with it, they've disclosed. In their in their terms and conditions, and so they're being very upfront about it, um, and they're saying, you know, we have your consent and everything, and they do because you agreed to the terms and conditions. It's just that maybe you didn't think about um, the implications of that, or you didn't read them. More likely, um, when I. 
Actually, I will say that Ancestry's terms and conditions, they have edited since I last looked at them, and I, I do find them more readable and comprehensible because when I looked at them a year ago, I came to the conclusion that I had no idea because it was like eight different pieces of paper that I was piecing together, and I'm a lawyer, right? So I have like formal legal training. So if I was confused, I, I had no idea. And I do think it's more straightforward now. What I will say is that if you are listening to this and you have done this DNA testing and you're suddenly sitting there thinking, I don't know. I don't know if I want my DNA being used in this way. Um, you can request deletion of your DNA from the databases. And so you have that right. At least all of the ones that I looked at have that right. They all have a slightly different procedure for it. Um, but you can get in touch with them and say, I, I want to opt out of all of this. I don't want my DNA in the database anymore. Um, if you've consented to, um, you have to further consent to the scientific research part of it, at least on Ancestry you do. Um, but more than 80% of people do because I'm sure they just consent to everything, but you can also withdraw that consent as well and say, I don't want to be used in any future scientific experiments. Um, so I don't, you know, it's, it's, I think it's wrong to characterize it as stealing. They do have our permission. It's just that maybe you haven't thought about what the permission is. And the fact that there was such a huge outcry when 23andMe announced its partnership with GlaxoSmithKline, I thought kind of showed that a lot of people maybe didn't think through what they were doing. Because actually, they said, you consent to our using these with pharmaceutical companies for profit. And um, so if everyone had thought that through, that should have been no big deal. That was just what they expected to happen. And so um, I'm not sure that necessarily we think and, and that's common on the internet right like the whole all the discussions we've had about Facebook have been that we didn't really think through what might be the repercussions of everything yeah but you said something I thought was so fascinating is that instead of paying these companies to test our DNA they should be paying us for that information. for the value of the DNA it's it's immensely valuable they are creating immensely valuable databases and we are paying them for that um, to learn about ourselves <laughs> we're learning about ourselves um, so you know, and it, and it costs them money to run the tests and stuff, of course. But it, you know, it is true that they're sitting on really valuable gold mines of our information um, that I think are only going to increase in value as as we move forward and we learn even more about DNA and the and the human genome because we're we're in our infancy of understanding all of this. We're really early on in this whole process, which is when we should be talking about how we want to use it going forward. And the future is just wide open for legal precedents. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think I think we're going to have a lot of interesting debates as a society about about what to do about this. And and, you know, don't don't forget courts. Yeah, they do what they do. But legislatures can be creating legislation that tells the courts what they think we should be doing. And so, you know, if, if this is something that you're curious about, contact your representatives about Gina expanding it, repealing it, whatever it is that, that you think um, should be happening. It's it's a conversation we should have. Well, and on the pop culture front, my favorite DNA movie is Gattaca with Ethan Hawke, Uma Thurman, and Jude Law. And I just realized it came out 20 years ago. So wow. that's going to wrap <laughs> us up for today's In Legal Terms. Our call screener today has been Michelle McAdoo, and Jay White has been our board engineer. Thank you so much, Professor Richard Gershon and Professor Stacey Lantang, uh, for coming to us from the University of Mississippi School of Law. I'm Liz Gill. Up next is our two. Tuesday Southern Remedy Show, Relatively Speaking. I just saw Dr. Buttress through the window. So I hope you'll join us again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio.
This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.